0: May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I want to start out just a little bit talking about Greece. Um, Greece is a country, as you know, that is very rich in history. Its civilization dates back more than 5,000 years. It's the birthplace of philosophy, of great drama, of tragedy, of comedy, of all the early epic poetry, mathematics, art, architecture, so much of what we take for granted today. It's actually the birthplace of the original written history. The father of history is Herodotus. Um, It's the birthplace of the Olympic Games, and it's the inventor of a number of forms of government. For example, oligarchy, tyranny, anarchy, aristocracy, The Greeks tried it all before finally landing on democracy. The earliest stories that we have come out of Greece, and they are stories of gods and men and heroes. Yet, by the time of Jesus Christ, the glory that had been Greece was beginning to fade into ancient history. At a time when the Greeks, by then a conquered people under Roman rule were no longer so proud of themselves nor so sure of themselves. A new kind of hero arrived on their shores. He was unheralded and unrecognized. The man was not a king but he came in the service of a king, the king of kings and lord of lords. He had not won fame on a field of earthly battle but he was a battle-hardened warrior. He was a mighty soldier on the field of faith, a follower of Jesus Christ, and he came to teach the Greeks the way to everlasting victory. He was a warrior, a mighty warrior, and he came to proclaim that the greatest war of all, the war for man's soul, had been won, and had been won by a man named Jesus Christ and this was truly good news. Like Odysseus, Paul journeyed around the sea, but unlike Odysseus, Paul understood that the home he longed for was not of this world. He journeyed toward a heavenly home that could be gained only when he had fought the good fight, finished the race, and kept the faith. Today, Paul's story is known, but even more importantly, the one whom he fought to share, the one who died to save us all, is now known from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. The spread of Christianity around the world is due in large part because of the perseverance of Paul. Our odyssey followed in the footsteps of Paul. Paul as he crossed over from Asia Minor and entered the continent of Europe, we retraced his path as he strategically reasoned from scripture and shared the good news of Jesus Christ in major cities and trade centers of of Greece and the Aegean Sea. Let me give you a little history of Paul for a minute. Paul was born in Tarsus, on the coast of Asia Minor. He was a Roman citizen He grew up steeped in Greek culture that had been left over from the Hellenistic Age and the conquest of Alexander the Great, and he also had access to the greatest Jewish education that was available. He went to Jerusalem and studied under the famous rabbi Gamaliel. He knew Greek philosophy. He read Greek poetry. He likely understood the full pantheon of Greek gods and goddesses and all of the myths that went with them. He lived in a historic place, in a historic time, and within his own person, he combined the three different cultures of the ancient world, the Greeks, the Romans, and the Jews. In fact, before Paul was born, just a couple of decades before he was born in Tarsus, the queen of Egypt, Cleopatra, had journeyed to his hometown, and she was meeting Mark Antony there. She arrived in the city on a golden barge, rowed by silver oars, with purple sails, and the whole barge was adorned and festooned with flowers and perfumed oils. She herself stood on the bow as she came into port, and she was dressed as Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love. As you can imagine, it was a spectacle. Without a doubt, that story was told and retold in the city of Tarsus for generations, and undoubtedly, Paul was familiar with it. In Acts 21, Paul says to a Roman soldier, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city, and certainly that was true. Paul was zealous for the Jewish faith, As I said, he had studied under the greatest rabbi of the time, Gamaliel, and he spent the first 30 years of his life trying to destroy the new Christian faith because he believed it was leading the Jews astray. But then Paul himself was transformed. He was struck down and blinded on the road to Damascus, and he heard a voice and a vision saying to him, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? asked Paul. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. Paul himself told that story many times over the next 30 years of his life. On the road to Damascus, Paul met the resurrected Jesus face to face, and he was dramatically transformed. After regaining his sight, he disappeared into the Arabian desert for about three years. I like to imagine that he probably took all of the knowledge that he had gained by studying with Gamaliel and that he spent those years trying to reconcile everything he knew about Jewish history and Jewish law and prophecy with the Jesus that he had met face to face in that vision and whether Jesus really, truly fulfilled all of the law and the prophets. When Paul showed back up again, he was a man transformed. He had completely turned his life around, and he spent the rest of his mortal days on this earth preaching the faith that he had once tried to destroy. In that calling, and he believed it was a true calling from God, he was strategic, and he was tireless. He had seen the resurrected Jesus, and he wanted to carry that witness to the ends of the earth. Only death silenced his lips. But his words today still testify to us. For Paul, his faith was no private matter. He believed in engaging the culture, going out into it, and winning souls for Christ. He believed it was a battlefield. He was an encourager He brought people to faith in Jesus, and then he connected them in fellowship, in the fellowship of believers, and thereby, by joining brother and sister to brother and sister, he created the earliest churches, the very bodies of Christ. Paul visited these fledgling churches when he was able to, to further strengthen and encourage them in their faith. And when he was not able to be there, he wrote lengthy letters to them. He never stopped correcting, reproving, strengthening, encouraging, and building up the body of believers. It's a lesson for all of us. Our odyssey, as you can see, followed closely on Paul's second missionary journey as he traveled with Silas, Luke, and Timothy. We added a few stops on our odyssey that came from his third missionary journey and then there were one or two stops that Paul likely didn't hit or we have no record of hitting but if he was sailing around the Aegean it's entirely likely that he landed on these places. So, we were on the move just as Paul was on the move. Um, Because Paul was a Roman citizen he eventually ended up in Rome. He was imprisoned later in life for preaching the gospel. And he could not be executed the way the Jews were. He could not be crucified. And so ultimately, he appealed all the way to Caesar and ended up in Rome where he waited for his execution as a prisoner in chains for preaching the gospel. He was executed finally by having his head cut off with a sword. It was a symbolic end. For a man who had used all his intellectual prowess, his great mind, to draw souls to Christ, even writing letters from prison to encourage and grow the churches he had planted, and even sharing his faith with the Roman jailers so that some of them converted to Christianity. The only way for the Roman government to finally stop Paul's witness was literally to remove his head, his great mind severed from his body. And this they did around 64 or 65 AD. As we traveled from city to city, it was amazing to consider the effect that one man had had on the world by sharing his own witness of the power of the risen Christ. By himself, Paul literally helped change the world. So, like Paul, we traveled by ship. Like Paul, we walked ancient city streets that were often very crowded. Like Paul, we marveled at temples built to honor pagan gods that were already ancient at the time of Paul. We experienced breathtaking natural beauty again and again and again and again. Greece is an incredibly beautiful country. We played at being heroes. We dined with Greek gods. (laughs) We enjoyed enthusiastic Greek hospitality and we experienced wonderful fellowship both with family and with friends. We sailed along on Homer's wine-dark sea. I wish I could say that our vessel was as sleek as this one. (laughs) Unfortunately, it looked more like this. Um, We stopped in magical ports on scattered islands, and we dined like the best Epicureans in the world, meal after meal after meal after meal (laughs) after meal. And we even sampled local delicacies when we had the opportunity. In short, our journey was not much like Paul's. Paul's journey took him through the Roman Empire, a place of military occupation and dominion in what was really a savage, violent world, even though Roman rule maintained an overall peace, later called by historians the Pax Romana. Because Roman soldiers were charged with keeping the peace, the empire was fully connected by roads and even what would be considered major highways, and all roads eventually led to Rome. Greek was the common language of all educated people, and the Romans had largely adopted the Greek gods and much of Greek art, architecture, and culture. Caesar was lord of all, but ancient mythologies and superstitions were tolerated. In short, people, and the further you were from Rome, the more you could do this, could create their own religions as long as they recognized Caesar's dominion overall. Again, very similar to the world in which we live today, where people are enjoying creating their own religions. Paul's arrival in Macedonia was a momentous historic event It would ultimately transform Greece, Europe, and continents that Paul did not even know yet existed. But at the time, the significance of it was known only to God. As described in Acts 16, Paul's missionary attempts were frustrated all across Asia Minor. God closed down every avenue before him. Ultimately, having made his way to Troas on the far western coast of what is modern-day Turkey, and symbolically the region of what was ancient Troy, Paul had a dream, and in that dream, a man from Macedonia appeared to him, urging him to come over to Macedonia and help us. Paul believed that was God's call, and he lost no time in setting off immediately across the Aegean Sea. Paul stepped ashore on the European continent in Neapolis, Today, it's the same city is known as Kavala. It's a small harbor town, and in ancient times, it served the great cosmopolitan metropolis of the city of Philippi. We had lunch right down on the harbor there, and I want to call your attention to the armed fortress up on top of the hill. The Greeks were always facing east and always wary of invaders. From there... Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke made their way along the Via Ignatia up to the city of Philippi. The Via Ignatia was a major Roman east-west road that ran from Rome to Byzantium. Anyone traveling overland to or from Rome literally had to pass through Philippi. It was a two-way road. Chariots could pass each other going opposite directions. That's how large a road it was. Philippi itself was named for for Alexander the Great's father, Philip II of Macedon, and it was strategically located on a hill above a plain. It was known as the gate from Europe to Asia because whoever controlled that plain and the mountains on either side of it could control the flow of traffic between two continents. It was heavily traveled, it was a very fertile region, and it was ripe, for sowing the seeds of the gospel. Philippi was such a Roman city that there were not even enough Jews to have a synagogue there. You needed 10 to 12 Jews in a city in order to be allowed to build a synagogue. And so, not to be deterred, after wandering around the city for some days, Paul and the others went down to the river to pray. And there they found a group of women. They spoke to these women about Jesus, and the Lord opened the heart of one of the women, a woman named Lydia, and she had been seeking after God. Lydia was a businesswoman from Thyatira over in Asia Minor, and she sold purple goods and purple cloth, predominantly to wealthy people, so she was likely a very successful businesswoman. She believed what Paul said, and she was baptized that day and became the first Christian convert in Europe. Her whole household was converted as well, and the fruit of the spirit became manifest in her almost immediately because she immediately offered her home and her hospitality to Paul and the others traveling with him. So imagine meeting down by the river four strange men from a foreign country and inviting them home to stay with you. She was truly a woman of great faith. We went there to the site. There's a beautiful small church there that is octagonal in sides, eight being the number for eternity, and it's known as the Baptistry of Lydia. It's got beautiful mosaics and and paintings inside, particularly of the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. We enjoyed a Eucharist ceremony led by Jim Lewis and Jeff, and then at the end of it, we were able to dunk our feet in the stream where Lydia was baptized. How remarkable in so many ways that the first Christian convert was a woman and not only that but a businesswoman who had enough wealth to have houses and likely traveled between two continents. She obviously was energetic about sharing her gifts and she was energetic about helping these new missionaries. A woman that warm and welcoming undoubtedly had a lot of friends. And as we know, ladies like to talk to their friends. So you can imagine that very soon her friends in Philippi heard of her new faith. And so the seeds of the gospel began to grow in Greece. But, as is so often the case, in Philippi, when the gospel is preached, it attracts the notice of those who oppose it. So as Paul wandered the streets of Philippi, his teaching attracted the attention of a girl possessed by a spirit of divination. And she began following Paul and the others around town. And she began crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now that was true. But a servant girl possessed by a demon Shrieking at the top of her lungs is not a good way to draw people to Jesus Christ. Paul spent a number of days trying to ignore her and her continual racket, but eventually he became annoyed. No doubt, her loud cries made it impossible for people to hear the message that he was trying to share. And so eventually, in the name of Jesus, Paul commanded the spirit to come out of her, and it did. And so you can see this is a painting from inside Lydia's baptistry that shows the demon-possessed girl, and you can see the serpent-like creature that totally surrounds her. Unfortunately for Paul, this upset her owners, who had used her spirit of divination and her fortune-telling ability to make money for themselves. So when suddenly she lost that ability, that affected their income. They rushed into the market, they created a huge commotion, they grabbed Paul and Silas and they dragged them into the marketplace accusing them of being foreigners who were breaking Roman laws. They never even asked Paul if he was a Roman citizen. A crowd then attacked Paul and Silas, the magistrates joined in and ordered them beaten and thrown in jail. What a direct contrast to Lydia's gracious hospitality. The city officials never even asked Paul and Silas's version of the story. But God used what had meant for evil for good. Rather than bemoan their fate and face death at dawn, Paul and Silas spent the night in jail singing songs of praise and worship to God. Undoubtedly, the other prisoners and jailers were listening. Around midnight, there was a huge earthquake and all the cells broke open. The jailer, the Roman jailer, assumed that the prisoners had escaped, and he pulled his sword to kill himself, but Paul called out to him that they were all still there. The man called for light and rushed into the dark prison cell, only to be introduced to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. He fell on his knees before Paul and Silas, and he asked the most important question any person can ask. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they answered, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. That night, he and his whole household were baptized into the Christian faith, and like Lydia, he also immediately extended the hospitality of his home to the men who had saved his soul, the men who had been his former prisoners. The light of the world had clearly entered Philippi, and people were being drawn to Christ and joining the army of God that would eventually drive out the darkness. But this also established a pattern that would follow Paul throughout Greece. The word of God would be preached, some would believe, others would not. It would cause division and then persecution and Paul would have to move on. But always, always, the gospel was spread. So Paul and Silas left Philippi the next day and went to Thessaloniki, the region of Thessalonica. Thessalonica today is still a very modern city, right on the harbor in the northern part of Macedonia, and it still honors their great hero, Alexander the Great. You'd think they might build a statue to Paul, but the whole waterfront is dominated by this statue to Alexander the Great. There, Paul did find a synagogue, so there were enough Jews there in that city, and he reasoned, these are the ruins of where the synagogue would have been, he reasoned with the Jews from the scripture for three Sabbath days, so likely for some weeks. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many devout Greeks, and interestingly enough, not a few leading women, we're told. Once again, women and men became Christians, and likely each one shared the faith with their friends, spreading the good news further and further and growing a new church. But once again, just like in Philippi, the enemy stirred up jealousy and wicked men created a mob, shouting to the authorities, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. Ironically, Paul and Silas were the ones who were trying to set the world right. Apparently, Greek hospitality to strangers was what was being turned upside down. We had a teaching in a public park right near where the synagogue had been. Um, It was a park covered by some pretty nasty graffiti. Um, So we had a feeling that there were still some wicked men floating around Thessaloniki. Um, Paul and Silas had to leave Thessalonica by night. They continued along the Via Ignatia, the Roman road, until they got to Berea. And there Acts 17 tells us, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word in all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed. And with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men, once again, we see women and men coming to faith together. I've always thought that it would be wonderful if every Christian could be like a Berean. If we could all go out into the world and take the things that we read and hear and bring them back and compare them with Holy Scripture and find out what is really true. It's a tremendous marker. Unfortunately for Paul, he could not linger long in Berea either. Those who had risen up against him and his teaching in Thessalonica soon learned that the word of God was being proclaimed in Berea, and they came there also agitating and stirring up crowds. So the brothers sent Paul off by ship, and by ship he came to Athens. So Paul came to this great ancient city, Undoubtedly, he came with great expectations because he had studied the ancient Greeks. He had read their philosophy and their poetry. Athens had been one of the world's oldest and greatest cities. In its history, it had been a center of art, of culture, of philosophy. It's considered even today the cradle of Western civilization. 500 years before the birth of Christ, the Greek poet Pindar wrote of the city of Athens, City of light with thy violet crown, beloved of the poets, thou art the bulwark of all of Greece. So Athens was a magnificent city and likely Paul arrived as an enthusiastic tourist. But Athens was also a very pagan idol-worshipping city which is what we all are. We all find idols to worship. And the elite of Athens at that time were also philosophers, but they were Epicureans who believed in eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow ye may die, and Stoics who believed in no pleasure at all. Yet interestingly enough, as we know, God works in history, and he is always preparing the soil. So let's talk... look at how God prepared the soil of this pagan city with its Acropolis full of temples to multiple different gods. It's Parthenon built to honor the goddess Athena, the goddess of wisdom that still lingers today. 400 years before Paul arrived, Socrates, perhaps the greatest Athenian philosopher of Athens's golden age and perhaps even the greatest philosopher who ever lived had intellectually argued for the existence of one creator god the light and source of all as recorded in plato's allegory of the cave socrates described a cave to his listeners with a fire burning in the center and he described men who sat chained along one side of the cave facing away from the fire knowing only the dimly lit shadows cast upon the wall as their whole existence. Socrates proposed to his students that outside that cave there was a source of light, the source of all truth and beauty. It was a brilliant reality but all that the men knew was this life in the cave, this life of darkness and shadows. They were bound in chains to prevent them from discovering this one true light. Socrates suggested to his listeners that if a man's chains were unlocked and he, however protestingly, were dragged out of the darkness of the cave, he would discover the light. And once this man knew the light, He would be so overwhelmed by it that he would never want to leave its presence. But Socrates also reasoned that that man would likely have compassion for those who were like he had been, those who remained in the darkness of the cave. And therefore, Socrates reasoned, it was likely that this man would try to return to the cave to unlock the chains that bound the men and lead them up into the light. Socrates continued arguing that if this man went back into the darkness and tried to share what he had learned to lead the others out, they would likely accuse him of being mad. The final question Socrates posed to his listeners was, and if they can get hold of this person, who takes it in hand to free them from their chains and to lead them up to the light, and if they could kill him, Will they not actually kill him?" His listeners pondered that and the response as recorded by Plato was, yes, they certainly will. For his belief in and his arguments like this in public for the existence of one omnipotent creator God, Socrates was ultimately brought to trial in Athens. He was charged with neglecting the worship of the pantheon of Greek gods and of leading the youth of Athens astray through such teachings. Socrates' trial was held on a rocky hilltop known as the Areopagus, and you can see it in the front left bottom corner of your screen. The Areopagus was where the public business of the city of Athens was conducted, It sat just below the Acropolis with the magnificent Parthenon honoring Athena and it overlooked the green wooded area which was the agora or the marketplace where Socrates usually taught. Socrates argued his own defense and he did it rather brilliantly if you've ever read Plato's Apology. But the citizens of Athens voted his guilt and he was put to death. He drank a cup of hemlock and he died according to the laws of Athens. Athens's polytheistic pagan culture tried to kill the truth of God by putting to death the man who argued for his existence 400 years before the birth of Christ. When Paul arrived in Athens, having been run out of four cities, Philippi, Thessalonica, well three, sorry, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, he began sharing Christ. And he shared him in the marketplace, in the synagogues, in the streets. And eventually, like Socrates, Paul's teachings attracted the attention of the philosophers and the elite of Athens. The hill that served as Socrates' courtroom, the Areopagus, was named for the Greek god of war, Ares. Today, Most people know it by its Roman name because the Romans just changed the names of the Greek gods, and it's known as Mars Hill. Acts 17 recounts that these Athenians took Paul and brought him to the Areopagus, literally the hill of war, and asked him to explain this new teaching that he proclaimed. Now remember, Paul was educated in Greek. He had read the Greek philosophers, and he likely knew of Socrates' teaching and of Socrates' fate. I imagine Paul found his situation at that moment rather sobering, but that knowledge did not dent the fervor as he stepped atop the Areopagus and told the descendants of those who had killed Socrates, quote, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. And you can just imagine Paul turning and gesturing up to the Acropolis and all of the temples, the Parthenon, the Erechtheum, the statue to Nike, the goddess of victory. He went on, "'Nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. The times of ignorance God ignored,' But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. On that rocky hilltop, in that symbolic setting, in the shadow of the Parthenon, the temple to the goddess of wisdom, and just below the statue of Nike, the goddess of victory, the people of Athens first learned of Jesus Christ. God made man. What a moment in history that was. But there's more to the story. During that same period, there's the Areopagus again from below. During that same time period, the Greeks also worshipped two relatively new gods. Historically, the Olympian gods were not particularly helpful to men and more often were reckless, capricious, even dangerous to men. They could sometimes be deadly to men. These two later gods who came into existence late in the Greek pantheon, Demeter and Dionysus, were different. Rather than living on Mount Olympus, they were gods of the earth. Demeter was goddess of the corn and the harvest, and Dionysus was the god of the vine and wine. Together they represented bread and wine, along with the joyful fellowship that's found in sharing the two of these things with friends. These were gods who were sympathetic to human suffering because they themselves had suffered. Demeter lost her daughter, Persephone, to Hades, the king of the underworld, when Hades abducted her while she was out picking flowers one day, Zeus had to negotiate a deal to allow her to return to her mother, and the deal required that Persephone not have tasted food or drink while she was in the underworld. But unfortunately, she had eaten several seeds from a pomegranate. Therefore, she was only allowed to rise from the land of the dead and return to her mother for part of the year. That became the time when the earth celebrated the bounty and harvest of spring and summer. Each autumn and winter, Persephone returned below to Hades, and the fields and flowers died in grief and were reborn upon her rising again in the spring. The pomegranate flower came to symbolize resurrection, rebirth, and new life. And the next time you're worshiping in St. Philip's, look up at the ceiling, and you'll discover that it is full of pomegranate flowers. Dionysus, as god of the, of the, uh, god of the wine was also literally the vine. Each year the grapevines, which cover the mountain sides of Greece and grow so well there, were pruned back to the earth, back to gnarled, dead stumps, and their branches were burned in a hot fire. As the personification of the grapevine, Dionysus himself was believed to die painfully each fall and be resurrected with new fruitful life again each spring. These two gods were worshipped as part of the mystery rites because the Greeks believed that their descent into death and their resurrection or ascent to new life could not fully be explained by men. When Paul left the Areopagus, after sharing the news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Acts 17 tells us, some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysus the Areopagite. One of the initial believers in Athens, that cosmopolitan cultural ancient center of the world, was a man named for the pagan god of the fruitful vine. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. A follower of Dionysus heard about Jesus from Paul and believed in the one true God. Dionysus the Areopagite would grow, go on to become the first bishop of Athens, where he would shepherd the growing flock of Christians amidst that secular pagan culture. So God cares for every detail. The Greeks were spiritual seekers. And you can see in looking at the detritus that is all around the ruins that there are symbols to pagan gods and symbols to Christian gods. But for 3,000 years before Christ, they had literally tried everything under the sun. Yet all their deities, all their worldly pride, their great military victories, their heroes, their architecture, their art, nothing could satisfy their souls. They yearned for something more. So sure were these Greeks that there was something just beyond their comprehension that Paul noted when he proclaimed the faith to them they even had an altar to an unknown God. They had erected a spiritual signpost, but they needed a guide to direct them to the destination to which it pointed. The Greeks had imagined the Christ story hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. For centuries, They had literally been brushing up against the truth. They were ready to meet the God they did not know, and Paul came to proclaim him. Literally, the world was never the same. Paul left Athens after that and went to Corinth, and so did we, and Corinth is located on the isthmus between the Peloponnesian Peninsula and the mainland of Greece. It is an international port city and even today it connects the two Adriatic and the Aegean Seas, and you can see there's ship traffic that goes back and forth. As with most international port cities, though, Corinth offered what sailors most seek when they step ashore after a long sea voyage. It was a city brimming with corruption, with sex, and with every kind of sin imaginable. It's possible that Paul recognized a little bit of his hometown of Tarsus when he landed in Corinth. He understood the problems, and with God's help, he addressed them. He teamed up very quickly with Aquila and Priscilla, who had fled Rome. They were Jews when Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome. And as was his pattern, he first began by reasoning with the Jews in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Eventually, the Jews there opposed and reviled him, and so Paul just simply moved over to the Gentiles. He literally moved next door. He set up in the house of Titius Justice, which was right next door to the synagogue. Paul was encouraged by a dream, by God in a dream, and he ended up staying in Corinth for a year and a half, preaching and teaching about Jesus in the midst of that city of sin. And even today, you can see there are many ruins to the pagan gods. We had an incredible teaching by Jeff, and just to remind us that Satan always lurks nearby, just as Jeff finished teaching, a snake went by his heel and underneath the rock behind him. Corinth is a city that is remarkably well-preserved in many ways. Um, you can almost feel like the Apostle Paul could walk around a corner at any moment and feel right at home. From Corinth, Paul moved on and sailed to Ephesus, and so did we. (laughs) Paul landed in Ephesus on the shore of Asia Minor, again in an international port city that worshiped pagan gods. Unfortunately today, Ephesus still worships pagan gods, Um, as we discovered very quickly. The Greeks, sorry, the Ephesians specifically worshipped a highly sexualized form of the goddess Artemis. The, Artemis was a Greek goddess, and the Greeks had believed that she was actually a lovely chaste maiden who lived in the forest, was very shy, and spent her time caring for the deer and the rabbits and other animals. The Ephesians took this image of, of the goddess Artemis, and they converted her into an overly sexualized fertility goddess, literally a patron goddess of lust and of earthly appetites. On Paul's first visit to Ephesus, he only spent a little time there reasoning with the Jews in the synagogues, and then he departed for Jerusalem and Antioch. But he came back very soon, and he spent two and a half years in the city of Ephesus, and Again, he began by reasoning with the Jews in the synagogues, but when some of them began to speak evil of the way, which is what the Christians were called, the followers of Jesus, he left the synagogue once again and took his message out into the public streets of Ephesus. He used whatever public venue he could find and never stopped preaching and teaching, scattering the seeds of the word. After two and a half years of an amazingly transformative time in Ephesus, and Acts tells us that a large number of people came to faith in Christ, the merchants who sold those statues began to realize that their business was dropping off. And so they rose up against Paul and caused a massive riot, ultimately coming to, through this field, whoops, I don't have the theater, sorry, thought I had a picture of the theater. Ultimately ending up in this area, the theater was actually under construction so we couldn't go in there, Um, where they tried, where they created a massive riot, thousands upon thousands of people, 10,000 or more, that began verging on violence. The brothers actually wouldn't let Paul enter the theater. And so after that, Paul realized that it was time to get out of town yet again, so he went back through Macedonia to visit and encourage the first Christians he had baptized there. We took off for a few other stops on our journey. Our ship headed to Patmos, where we visited the cave of the Revelation, where the Apostle John had had the revelation from God. This was an amazingly powerful place to be, in this cave. Um, It was high up on the hill. Well, let me just pause and say, it was interesting to consider Revelation having just left Ephesus because, of course, in the book of Revelation, the angel says to the church in Ephesus, write, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen the love of Jesus Christ. Repent, And do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Looking at Ephesus today and the culture there that is a very dishonest culture, um, it was clear that Ephesus apparently did not repent. The cave of the Revelation in Patmos was a very low-ceiling, dark cave. And this was where John was imprisoned. Whoops, sorry. We were able to see, I don't know if you can see on the left-hand side of the screen, you are looking down at sort of a, a gap in the rock wall where John would stretch out on the floor and rest his head in this groove in the rock wall. And then just beside it, above on the rock wall, outlined in silver, was a handhold, a little ledge that he would roll over and put his hand in the hold to pull himself up each morning to wake up. So you realize that his existence was fairly limited, and it's amazing that he was able to write the book of Revelation in this place. We then went on to Rhodes, where we climbed the Acropolis at Lindos. It was one of the more harrowing climbs. Um, There are, if you've been there, there are no handrails. You're literally winding up the side of a mountain on a very, very, very crowded path, and you're thinking that anybody next to you is going to push you over the edge. And apparently they do lose tourists with some regularity there, which was we learned after we got down. Um, we saw the Acropolis, and from the Acropolis we were able to look down into the tiny little bay of St. Paul, And the Bay of St. Paul is where, allegedly, Paul either was washed ashore after a shipwreck or his ship managed to put into that little harbor to escape a storm. Both stories are entirely possible because there were a number of shipwrecks, and even today there are shipwrecks dating back to the Bronze Age that litter the floor of the Mediterranean Sea there. We ended our journey at Delphi. Delphi is a beautiful little small village that hangs on the side of Mount Parnassus, and it actually overlooks the Gulf of Corinth. And from Delphi, you can see across the Gulf to the city of Corinth. So in some ways, we had circled back almost to where we began. Delphi is an ancient religious site that honors the god Apollo, and it comes from the Greek word Delphis, which literally means the womb, like a woman's womb. The Greeks believed that Zeus, father god, had to originally sent two eagles out to fly from the east and from the west, and where the eagles crossed was to mark the center of the world. It was literally at Delphi, and that was the womb of Mother Earth, the center of her her body. Gaia, as you may know, was the ancient Earth Mother goddess that the Greeks believed in. She was older than all the other gods, And she had a son called Pytho, literally where we get our word python from, or large serpent, large snake. Pytho supposedly guarded his mother's womb, which is a little incestuous. Um, As earth mother, Gaia also represented both fertility and sexuality. As such, her sacred sites often had a very seductive natural beauty, and Delphi was like, like that. It was an incredibly beautiful place. Apollo, supposedly, according to myths, came later to Delphi, and he was supposed to be the god of light and truth, but Apollo also had a dark side. According to legend, he took control of Delphi, he went down into the darkness of the earth, and he killed the serpent, Pytho, and then he installed his own priestess, but he called her Pythia, named after Pytho. The Pythia was always a very young, very beautiful girl. She lived in the temple with as many as a hundred other young, beautiful priestesses. And at Apollo's direction, she would answer questions of people who came seeking to know their future. She would do this by perching on a, on a tripod, on a cauldron, that was seated over a tripod and positioned over a fissure in the rock face of the mountain from which gases would rise up from inside the mountain. She would inhale these gases, go into a trance, oftentimes she would actually fall off her tripod, and she would answer whatever questions were put to her. The answers often came in ways that had to be deciphered, which you can imagine if she was that woozy. And usually they only became clear in hindsight. In essence, what we found at Delphi was that Apollo, the alleged god of light and truth, had murdered Mother Earth's son and then created his own cult of sexuality and fertility surrounded by hundreds of young prostitutes where the lead priestess was named after the snake and was literally supposed to sit in the darkness and inhale poisonous gases rising up from the bowels of the underworld. doesn't really sound like a god of light and truth. It sounds like that the Greeks had taken the story of the true god of light and had actually turned it upside down. So Delphi offered a number of lessons for us today. The idea that great beauty can be deceptive, and that unbridled sexuality and fertility detached from the true God of light is not healthy or life-giving. Every single Pythia that we have a record of died very, very young. I'm sure poisonous gases didn't help much. (laughs) But interestingly enough, the Oracle at Delphi continued to be sought after and to attract people for literally 2,000 years. It was only in around 300 A.D., 300 years after Jesus walked the earth, that Christianity became strong enough to overwhelm the oracle at Delphi, and that disappeared. So let's think a minute about the lessons Paul may have for our world today. How is our world like that of the Greeks during Paul's time? First of all, Paul entered a pre-Christian, pagan world. We live in a post-Christian, secular world. We make light of sin. I'm using a computer that has an apple with a bite taken out of it. We all want to be as rich as Croesus was. We all want to travel as luxuriously as the gods. We want to be as beautiful as a goddess... That banner was actually hanging in the Heathrow Airport in London on our way home. I couldn't believe it. We toy with evil. And just down the street, you can have your fortune told by Zoltar, the oracle, if you go in the vendu Inn. Literally two blocks from our church. So we still seek out prophecies, psychics, oracles. In fact, that first shot is my drive on Coleman Boulevard. But if you look around town, there are a fair amount of of these. And they're all beautiful young women if you click on the sites. Interestingly enough, the word oracle is back in the news again. Just in the fall of last year, the Detroit News published an article highlighting a woman known as the Oracle of Los Angeles. She apparently conducts tarot card readings. Get this, she has a weekly podcast, she publishes regular newsletters, she has her own website, she's got a significant social media following, she does TV appearances, she's lectured at the J. Paul Getty Museum. She's published one book, and she currently has a memoir that's due out in the spring. According to this article, she is a professional witch who performs energetic healings, intuitive empowerment sessions, and the occasional exorcism. One of her clients says she is a marvelous spiritual coach and considers seeing her to be the same thing as consulting a rabbi or a pastor. Recently in the news, Rachel Maddow of MSNBC has been referred to as the oracle of our age. And Greta Thunberg, the climate change young lady, has also been called the oracle we need for our time. Additionally, we're seeing a renewed interest in Gaia, Earth Mother, even within the church. This is Peterborough Cathedral in England that last summer hosted. Gaia, Earth Mother, in the cathedral. And in the evenings, they had cathedral yoga, where you were invited to lie in contemplation of Gaia. And their website said, Settle down under the turning earth to experience this imaginative and meditative session, which will use the ancient tradition of yoga to draw on our connectedness with the natural world. Their websites for Gaia numerous ones I picked just one Gaia incorporated this website says there's more to you than you think travel down a new road with Gaia join our community of seekers dreamers and doers to empower your own evolution everything is waiting for you you can be whoever you want to be which path will you choose I think Paul would have had an answer to that. One road leads to life, the other to death, and you should choose wisely. Additionally, we're also witnessing in our world today a rise of witchcraft and interest in the occult. A recent article on what it means to be a witch says, "...witchcraft is simply about using the power of the universe and the mind to attract our wants and desires." It's about being in tune with earth's natural resources and using them to mystically quench a spiritual thirst. It's an understanding of one's own spirituality. At this period of time, it's essential to have beliefs that we can mold to our own specific needs. Makes you think of Genesis, doesn't it? Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. Last year, Newsweek reported that there were one and a half million practicing witches in America. Just to put that in context, the Presbyterian Church says they have 1.4 million members nationwide, and the Episcopal Church claims 1.6 members. So there are as many witches as there are Presbyterians and Episcopalians. In England, there's actually a witch that showed up in the news last week, and her name is Harmony Nice. (laughs) She has a million and a half social media followers. The Archbishop of Canterbury and the Church of England have 335,000 social media followers. Newsweek stated that Wicca has effectively repackaged witchcraft for the millennial consumption. No longer is witchcraft and paganism considered satanic or demonic. Instead, it's a pre-Christian tradition that promotes free thought and understanding of earth and nature. It's a historic tool of resistance and resilience. Astrology is also part of this. The very word astrology comes from the Greek combining astro for stars and logos, logos meaning the word or wisdom. The Apostle John tells us that Jesus is the logos, Literally, the word made flesh. But astrology originally comes from Mesopotamia, literally the Babylonians. It was a Babylonian priest who brought it to Greece about 300 BC. And it's the idea that you should follow the wisdom of the stars. It's also part of Baal worship. And if you remember, Elijah defeated the gods of Baal on the side of Mount Carmel in the Old Testament. But Paul was still confronting such pagan beliefs and spirituality in Greece when he arrived, and we are definitely still dealing with these things today. One of the things you'll find, and I found this on a kneeler in a church that I was in for a funeral recently, is that we are told that we should tolerate all these different beliefs. We're not to contest anything. It sort of belies what the Philippian jailer asked Paul when he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. They didn't say, believe in tolerance. Archbishop Chaput says, we need to remember that tolerance is not a Christian virtue and it's never an end in itself. In fact, tolerating grave evil within a society is itself a form of evil. So our world today, in many ways, is like a pack of lost sheep. And we saw these guys in Delphi wandering up the road with the shepherd frantically running along behind, yelling for them. We need to introduce people to Jesus. Yet we know that if we do this, it's going to take us to the hill of war, just like it did Paul. We've got to recognize that we're in a battle. 1,500 years after Paul, the Muslims invaded Greece in 1453 B.C. and conquered, and a- A.D., sorry, and conquered Greece. For the next 400 years, Greece lived under Islamic rule. There were a handful of Christians in a place called Meteora, that went up into the hills, literally on top of these rock pillars, and they built monasteries in order to preserve the faith so that it could be handed down to people after them. They did paintings of icons on the walls of the monasteries, and the paintings told the story. Many of them told the story of the Last Judgment. Over and over again, we saw the Last Judgment. And what you may notice, it's a little hard to see, I put the reproduction one next to it here, but you will see there's a scale, let's see if I can point, right there, and you can see that the scale is being weighed and the soul is stepping on the scale, the scale of justice, and you can see that there are impish little devils that are waiting to jump on the scale and add weight to it. And then there are others who are waiting to grab the soul and throw him into the river of fire that then goes down to hell and the Leviathan. These Greeks were very clear what happened to people if you didn't believe. This was in the monastery on Patmos and you can see it's much the same thing. You have up above the devils who are putting weights on the scales and then you have this larger devil who is leading souls down into hell. C.S. Lewis said, there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. So what should we do? Paul's answer is we must persevere. Paul endured so much as he wrote in 2 Corinthians, five times I received the 40 lashes lest one, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Are we to sit inside the walls of our church? Are we to hole up in a fortress? Paul said no. He said we are to take the cross of Christ and we are to go out and engage the culture but we must keep the cross of Christ in front of us. And in Ephesians, when he wrote to the people of Ephesus, he gave his advice of how to do this. He told them to take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. He wrote to the Corinthians saying, this is what you preach. You preach Christ crucified. He said, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, the other thing that we saw in monastery after monastery was Jesus' resurrection. And again, I've used one of the reproduced images so that you could see it more clearly. But in place after place, we saw scenes of judgment and then we saw the anastasis, literally the resurrection, where Jesus, risen from the dead, has Broken down the gates of hell, you see the two gates down below, underneath his feet. And bound beneath them lies Satan, wrapped in chains, trapped beneath the gates of hell. And every key, every lock that has ever held men in chains is unlocked. And Christ himself is lifting Adam and Eve the original sinners, up to everlasting life with him. And notice he is not taking their hands. He's grabbing their wrists because it is nothing we can do of our own to save our souls. It is only through Christ that we can be saved. The Greeks got this, and they have preserved it for 2,000 years. They believe that Christ won the great victory, the laurel leaf. The crosses we saw all over Greece, the plaques you could buy, at the top say, Jesus Christ, Nikia, literally, Nike, victory. Jesus has won the victory. Paul's final advice to Christians, he included in Philippians, and he said, to protect your mind most of all and use it for Christ. He said, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things. Some say today, That we are like the Greeks, living amidst the fading ruins of Western civilization. Perhaps. But I choose not to believe that's true. I choose to believe that we are all called to follow Paul. We are called to be sowers of the seeds of the word of God and to believe that God has prepared the soil ahead of us in ways that we may never realize. My great-grandfather published a book in 1935 called Faith of Our Fathers. It's the battle Paul fought, it's the battle my great-grandfather engaged in, and it's the same battle that we face today. He said at the conclusion of his book, it is a wide, wide sea we sail to distant horizons. It is the battle of the ages which challenges us. It calls for every possible resource of personality and spirituality, for the finest possible, possible development of Christian character, for all that we can have of faith and love, of courage and devotion, of manhood and Christlikeness. The twilight which envelops us is the twilight of dawn, harbinger of the coming day, the day when the light of the world shall fill all human life with beauty. So may we be reconciled with our brothers in Christ. May we be united. May we walk together. And may we shine the light out into the gathering darkness of the world around us. May we continually, day by day, lift high the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And one of the last places that we stopped was the museum in Delphi. And in one of the back corners of one of the last rooms, there was this tiny little statue. It's made of bronze. It was only about two inches long. And it depicts the Greek hero Odysseus. It's the climactic moment in the Odyssey when Odysseus and his men have been trapped in the Cyclops cave, faced with a blind, flesh-devouring monster intent on destroying them. Odysseus and his men managed to escape by literally clinging tightly beneath the sacrificial rams as they rush out the mouth of the cave and into the light. What an image for us all. We can escape all of the assaults of the enemy if we will only cling this tightly to the Lamb of God. so that at the end of our day, we will be able to say like Paul, the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And I'd like to close with the words Paul wrote in one of his first letters to one of the first churches on the European continent that he established. He wrote it from Corinth, and he wrote it to the people of Thessalonica. Be at peace among yourselves. Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you'll allow me one more moment, I'd like to ask my sweet husband to play the hymn, O Church, Arise, for us to sing.